uh, of this chapter as we look at a father's blessing, uh, verses 1 through 12 of Genesis chapter 49. Before we read God's word together, please join me in prayer as we seek God's blessing upon it. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the Lord who has spoken into the darkness and created light, and you who spoke into that darkness have also spoken into the darkness of our hearts, that we should look upon the light of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for giving us your word, so that we are not lost in this world, but we have your very revelation, the words uh, that you have given uh, to holy men of old as you carried them along by your Spirit to reveal what you were doing and how you were doing it and why you were doing it in the world, that we should see our Savior, Jesus Christ. O Lord, draw our eyes to him today, we pray, and cause us to worship you in spirit and in truth as we hear and receive with meekness your implanted word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture is the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. And then jump down with me to verse 28 of this chapter. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. A few times uh, every year, Sarah and I load up our children. We take them on a road trip to western Pennsylvania to visit our families. And it is a long trip especially for the kids. It's about 10 hours of highway speeds and road signs and staring at the back of semi-trucks. Somewhere uh, almost out of New York State, right before you jump into the very tip of New Jersey, 
there is one of these rest stops on the side, one of these scenic overlooks. You come over the crest of a mountain and suddenly the valley opens for miles in front of you and, and there's a place that you can pull off and, and change your pace and take in the landscape and, and gather yourself before you move on and, and even if for just a few moments. Well, we've come today to a scenic overlook uh, in Genesis. Here we've been plugging along chapter by chapter for about four months uh, and today the pace changes. Suddenly, narrative opens into prophecy, and the patriarch speaks of, of these vistas that are stretching out before his family in the future. That's what he says in verse 1, I will tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So the pace here is changing in our text, and we're going to change pace with the text as we read it today. Sinclair Ferguson suggests that uh, this chapter actually is uh, an opportunity for a pastor to have a legitimate reason to preach a 12-point sermon. I've decided not to do that. Uh, instead, you'll notice, even if you look at the portion of this chapter that we haven't read, there are two main focal points in this chapter. The first focal point is Judah, and the second is Joseph. And just in, in pure real estate of this prophecy, between the two of them, they make up just over half of this oracle from their father. And so, with the Lord's help, we're going to divide it that way. We're going to focus today on Judah and the brothers that are connected to him. And next week, we'll, we'll look at Joseph. Actually, it'll be two weeks. Uh, I, I won't be preaching next week. But in two weeks, we'll come back and we'll look at Joseph uh, and some of the brothers that are connected to him. So this is how we'll be approaching in, in part one and part two. Now, in the portion that we've read, Judah is the one who stands out. That is all the more clear when you compare him to these three brothers that came before him. After Judah, we start to get into unknown territory. After Judah, it's Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Issachar and these brothers that we know almost nothing about. We don't know about their personalities. We don't know about their deeds. We actually know very little about uh, their tribes after they've come into the promised land. But we know an awful lot about Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah. And to be honest, what we know about all four of those men is not very flattering. All four of those men, at least early in life, were great sinners. They were men who were full of lust and rage and cowardice and self-indulgence. These four men were men who brought grief upon their father and shame upon their families. And here at the end, three of these brothers receive what we can really only call curses in the midst of this section of blessing. For three of these men, their deeds are returned upon their heads. And we see, as uh, it tells us in verse 28, that they receive a blessing that is suitable to them. And only Judah is spoken of in terms of power and might and honor and conquest. Now I think uh, that by the time this family has come down into Egypt, all of these brothers were believers. I think that, that they really were saved by faith in the Lord, that they had repented of their sins against Joseph and against Jacob. And in fact, when you look to the book of Revelation, it tells us that in the New Jerusalem, the city gates will be inscribed with all the names of the 12 brothers, even Reuben, even Simeon, even Levi. So I think they're believers. I think we can deduce that. But we have to know that if they are believers, if they've dealt in repentance, it's been off to the side somewhere where we haven't seen it. It's been off stage. It's been 
behind the scenes the Lord has been working in them. But in God's providence, Judah is the one that we have seen working through the depth of his own sin in God's word. Judah is the one who has broken and and confessed his need for mercy and his unrighteousness. And only in Judah have we seen the fruits of repentance in full harvest. So I think that becomes, for us, almost a parable. A solemn reminder in all four of these brothers of two things. One, that our sin has consequences. But two, that the Lord is able to overcome our sin. No matter how heinous that sin might be, to us or or to the people around us, the Lord is able to overcome it. So we're going to look more closely at this text in those two ways. And I want to suggest that we do so uh, with Romans 6 in the back of our minds, ringing in our ears and our hearts as we look at these, uh, these two sections of brothers. You know Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God's eternal life The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what we find in these brothers, in Reuben, in Simeon, in Levi, is the wages of sin. And in Judah, we find the gift of God. So now let's look at these first brothers. Verses 3 through 7, the wages of sin. And that's the theme, really, of verses 3 through 7. These first three brothers are given anti-blessings that correspond to their deeds. And it's a warning against the destructive power of sin. That's what sin is, folks. Sin is destruction. We may sometimes talk about it in different terms, as Romans does, that sin brings death. We may talk about sin as separating us from God. We may talk about sin as bringing eternal punishment. These are all uh, terms in in the category of destruction, that, that sin ruins our relationships. That it clouds our judgment, it enslaves our wills. Sin is that part of us that causes us to view other people as objects or as obstacles. Sin dismantles families. Sin leaves us always unsatisfied with the things of the world and simultaneously unwilling to turn to the Creator to find true happiness and true blessing. Sin is destructive. And in our age, there is a flurry of activity and language aimed at dismissing sin, denying sin, redefining sin, saying that it's really not something we need to worry about at all. But if we knew, really, how destructive sin is, we would never trifle with such things. In 1669, a Puritan by the name of Ralph Venning, Venning with a V, a Puritan by the name of Ralph Venning wrote a little book. It was called Sin. The Plague of Plagues. Now, in 1669, that was three and a half years after the Great Plague of London, where the bubonic plague swept through the city and killed 100,000 people in 18 months. And this is what he wrote in the wake of that horror. Venning said, Sin is exceedingly sinful and wicked. It is most immeasurably spiteful, poisonous, and pernicious, because sin kills men. Sin is destruction. I wonder if we agree with Venning today. If we find it easy just to to write that off as sort of a puritanical overshoot. I wonder if we agree with Scripture when it paints a stark picture of sin as disastrous and destructive. Sin is, is rust 
eating through the hull of an iron ship. Sin is a cancer that destroys the body in which it is growing. Sin as destructive. Do we agree with these things? This is what we find in this passage today. In these first three brothers, we catch a glimpse of this destruction. In Reuben, we find the way that the sin of unrestraint destroys ourselves. Notice the exalted language in verse 3. My firstborn, my might, my strength, preeminent in dignity and power and such exalted language. This is the way you spoke of a firstborn in the early centuries. The firstborn was your everything in the world. The firstborn was where you hung hopes for security and and longevity for your family. The firstborn son especially meant that the family trade would be carried on, that the family name would be passed along. Everything hinged upon your firstborn son. This is what you did. This is how you spoke of a firstborn son. Promise and security in the world. And it all falls apart in verse 4. You know, if Reuben's life had been a self-help book, I imagine the title probably would have been How to Ruin a Good Thing. Because even though he had every potential, he was removed from his preeminence because of his sin. Verse 4 says that he is he's unstable as water. It's a decent translation. I think better is the one that says turbulent. Turbulent as the water. Uncontrolled. And you imagine all those pictures and all that video that you've seen of those sudden downpours in in a desert waste someplace, and the ground can't absorb uh, the rain that's coming down, and suddenly it floods, and a flash flood is cutting a channel through the landscape, and it's ripping apart everything that was there before the downpour. He's turbulent as the waters. You imagine the destruction in Johnstown, Pennsylvania in 1889, and the South Fork Dam broke apart. And 2,200 people were swept away and killed. This is what Reuben is. He is unrestrained. He is turbulent. He is uncontrolled, unstable as a flash flood. And he is destructive. Last week, I realized many of you were not here, but last week we did some of the heavy lifting to understand what was going on in in Reuben's sin and how he was removed from his place of preeminence. I'm not going to rehash all of that now. But you need to understand, and I think you probably do already understand, the way that potential and privilege very often opens the door for recklessness. That's what Reuben's sin was. It was was recklessness. It was this desperate, ill-conceived attempt to move from being the firstborn to the one who was over everything, the one who would be preeminent over the entire family and the head. And if only, we would say, if only Reuben had waited, he would have received these things in due time. He would have remained in his place of preeminence and his dignity and his power. If only he had the self-control to receive the position in the family in due time. If only he was content to do what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age, but he was unrestrained. And in his unrestraint, he destroyed himself. The chronicle of the Reubenites, if you follow it through the history of the Old Testament, the chronicle of the Reubenites bears this out. They were the first ones to settle in the Promised Land, which meant they settled across the Jordan, closest to the raiding bands and, and the marauders in the desert and the wilderness, And little by little, the Reubenites simply disappear. 
And you will search in vain to find any leader of real prominence in the Old Testament from the tribe of Reuben. They're there. They're pretty obscure and removed from prominence. And he destroys himself because he's unrestrained. And folks, the same thing still happens. How many of us find that we would prefer the immediate gratification of sin rather than the patience of godly contentment? And we give in to unrestraint. We destroy ourselves in the process. And there there's uh, Simeon and Levi. They show us how the sin of anger destroys those around us. Now, in all of Israel's 12 sons, only Simeon and Levi are connected together in this, uh, this list of blessings. I think that's pretty significant. That's significant because we get the sense from verses 5 and, and 7, 5 through 7 there, that the last thing you want is for angry people to be joined together. And the last place you want to be is anywhere near angry people as they are joined together. In fact, that was the whole punishment for Simeon and Levi, that they would be scattered, that their anger would be dissipated, that their wrath would be abated by spreading it throughout the land rather than concentrating it. And Israel says in verse 6, you see it there, let my soul not come into their counsel, O my glory, be not joined to their company. Here's the only thing, humanly speaking, that you can do with anger. You can avoid it. You can stretch it out. You can deflect it. You can, you can point it in another direction. You can try to divide it a little bit as, as Israel is doing with his sons. Because the moment you allow anger to unionize and multiply, no one in its path is safe. And so he says, I will divide you. And this is what the Shechemites learned. The sin that Israel's talking about here is, is the destruction of an entire city, a town, a village of some sort, a, a, a large number of men and their families. These Shechemites, and, and uh, he's referring to the destruction of this entire town uh, in retaliation for the rape of Dinah, who was Simeon and Levi's sister. You can find that in Genesis 34. In fact, I want you to turn there with me. We're going to look at a little bit of it. Back to chapter 34. And we're going to see that the irony of this story is that what led to the ruin of the Shechemites is that they wanted to do what Israel says you should never do with angry men. They listened to their counsel, and they joined to their company because the sin of anger destroys everyone around it. Here's what it says. Let's begin reading in verse 7. We're picking up where the sons of Jacob come in from the field, and as soon as they heard of the defiling of their sister, as soon as they heard of it, the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor, this is... Shechem's father, Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Yeah, right? The, son, the soul of my son longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves and you shall dwell in the land with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and a gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. 
You see what they're doing. They come and they say, name your price. Give us your counsel. Join together with us and we will be one together. But we hear that ominous note and the men were very angry and indignant. They come seeking their counsel and looking for their company. And they came into destruction. You know, remember the rest of the story. At first, the anger of Levi and Simeon is calculating. So they give them false counsel. They tell them, if only you will take upon yourselves the, the covenant sign of circumcision, then we can be one and we can join together. And so that sounds like a good deal. And the men take that covenant sign. And while they're recovering, uh, the anger of Levi and Simeon moves from calculating to explosive. While they're recovering, they fall upon the men and they slaughter every last one of them. They take away their wives and their children and their possessions. And their anger was fierce, says Israel. Their wrath was cruel and anger destroyed those around them. Now the difficulty for us in reading this is recognizing that Levi and Simeon had a reason to be angry. There was real injustice that had been committed. There, there was a real sin that had been committed against Shechem. And when there is injustice, anger is very often a legitimate response. It's sad when, when God's people are not affected by injustice, when, when we don't care when those things are happening, when we're not a bit indignant when we see those things happening. But the danger of anger, and especially sinful anger, is it is very seldom satisfied with seeing rights done and seeing injustice turn to justice. Instead, sinful anger wants to go further. It doesn't just want restitution, it wants retribution. It doesn't just want righteousness, it wants vengeance. Sinful anger very often goes beyond the bounds of justice in order to satisfy the bloodlust of the one who is angry. And that's what we see happening all around us. It happens in our civil courts. And there is a small accident, a simple thing, and it turns into a a multi-million dollar litigation. And we chalk it up to pain and suffering. And someone's destroyed. It happens in the home, too. When disobedience is not met with measured correction and gentleness. Instead, there's a rage. Instead, there is an explosion and a catharsis and children and spouses are hit with the shrapnel of your anger. This happens. And anger destroys those people around us. And we say, but I've been wronged. I'm the victim here. There's been an injustice. Yes, there may have been, but anger still works this way. It destroys those around us if we give it vent. So here we see that the wages of sin, at least on an earthly level, I realize that this is not giving us yet a picture of of sin on an eternal consequence, not uh, sin as spiritual death, but I hope you see the destruction that sin is. This is the wages of sin. It destroys us. It destroys those who are around us. And that's what we find in Reuben and Simeon and Levi. These brothers receive a blessing that's suitable to them. And then there's Judah. Judah the sinner, and Judah the repentant, and Judah the recipient of the gift of God. And that gift is salvation. Sin is destruction, but God's gift is salvation. The gift of redemption. 
where all the destructive tendencies of Judah's life are overturned by God's grace. He, early in life, was at least as vengeful, at least as lustful, at least as unrestrained. And yet we've seen the Lord working repentance in him, and through repentance, Judah has become useful to the kingdom of God. In some ways, he rose to that place of prominence that Reuben lost. When the family came down into Judah, you remember that Israel sent Judah, I'm sorry, when they came down into Egypt, he sent Judah ahead to show him the way into Goshen. And he now becomes, in a sense, the family leader. And he's useful to God's kingdom. And here's how we could summarize the gift that Israel proclaims to Judah and to the family line that's going to come to him. That the gift of God is redemption and usefulness rather than sin and destruction. That's a summary of, of what uh, Judah receives. But there are actually four particular pieces uh, to, this, uh, to this blessing that he has. The four pieces are praise and dominion and obedience and abundance. Let's look at those quickly. Look at the text. Verse 8, we find praise. It says, your brothers shall praise you. It says, Judah, your, uh, your father's sons will bow down before you. Now, we know what this means, especially in the context of Joseph's story, don't we? Chapter 37, the whole thing began with a dream that his brothers would come and bow themselves in homage before him. This is language of rule and authority. This is language of, of a rightful claim to be praised by those around him, to be put in a position where others will give him rightful acclaim. We know what this means, and we also know how distasteful this is. You remember the reaction of the brothers, and you can imagine your own reaction if this were to come to you, that, that brother, that sibling, the one that teased you when you were children and annoyed you when you were a teen, and, and now you're going to be told that you're going to come and bow before them, and how distasteful that would be. But this is not uh, something that is going to be distasteful. It's not something that will be constrained. This is something that will be legitimate. It's not forced. His brothers will praise him because he's the mighty conqueror. There it is. They'll praise you, and they'll bow down before you because your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. That's the second point. It's dominion. There's dominion for Judah and for his line. It says in verse 9, you are a lion's cub. You go up from the prey, you stoop and you crouch. Now, when it's talking about a lion that's stooping and crouching, it's not talking about a lion that is waiting to pounce. It's talking about a lion who's already satisfied, who's already made his kill. He goes up from the prey, and now the lion lays down to rest. And this is a picture of complete dominion because uh, the rule and the kingdom, dominion of Judah, is uncontested. You know, we have a saying don't poke the sleeping bear. Well, maybe in Israel's time, it was don't rouse the sleeping lion. And so here it is, Judah, your kingship and your dominion will be so complete that it will be uncontested, and no one will, will argue with your dominion. And then we see in verse 10, obedience. Now here the various translations start to get uh, a little confused or confusing. It says, the scepter uh, or the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah. Uh, and the ESV says, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Chances are, if you don't have an ESV in front of you, yours might read a different way. And that third line there, especially where ours says, until tribute comes to him. And even the footnote in the ESV gives you three other suggestions for what it could possibly be. And the Hebrew is a little 
uh, challenging here. It could be uh, until Shiloh comes, as the King James has it, someone uh, who is associated with Shiloh, which was a town in the northern tribes. Someone, uh, until they come to Shiloh, that something monumental will happen at Shiloh, or my personal favorite, uh, until he comes to whom it belongs. That the scepter will not depart from Judah, the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah, until the one comes to whom that ruler's staff belongs. And to him will be the obedience of the peoples. Now, whichever one we choose, and you could find long-winded explanations for all of them, but whichever one you choose, the details of the text are, are just about the same, no matter which way you go. There is kingdom, dominion, that will revolve around what seems to be a single person. And there is a kingdom, dominion, around that single person that will extend beyond the borders of Israel. That's what it means when it says uh, the obedience of the peoples, the nations, not just the tribes, not just your father's sons, not just your brothers, but, but a worldwide dominion, a wide-ranging, multinational, world-dominating kingship. This is the promise. There will be obedience for Judah and for his tribe. So we've seen praise and dominion and obedience, and then there's abundance in verses 11 and 12. Now, this is a pretty colorful language, though we might not understand it at first. Uh, the idea here is an extreme affluence in the land because of peace that's been brought about by the kingdom of Judah. And that was the dream of the promised land, wasn't it? They were going to go into a place that was going to be their own, where they would be at peace, where everyone would sit under his own vine and receive the fruit of his own fig tree, and there would be this agricultural peace and utopia. And that's the picture that we're getting here. No one would dream, as it says, of tying their colt to the vine or their donkey's colt to the choice vine. You wouldn't do that unless you had vines to spare. You might as well take a Rottweiler and tie him to a T-bone. You might as well take a child and tie him to a chocolate bar. That vine is as good as gone. That's the picture here. Nobody would do this unless you have vines to spare. Unless wine is so common in the land that if you wanted to, you could use it as wash water. He washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That's the picture of abundance. And milk will make the teeth white against these deep red healthy lips and these sparkling eyes and its abundance and peace and its fruitfulness and it's this wonderful dream of the people of Israel. Do you see the different pieces of this gift that God is proclaiming to Judah and to those who will come after him? This is the gift of God. This is not what Judah deserves. This is far more than he deserves. This is far more than he could imagine. This praise and dominion and obedience and abundance. It's the favor of the Lord. Now, this prophecy about Judah from the earliest days of Israel has been interpreted in two different ways. One is, is sort of the face reading. Just what is the text telling us? What does it look like it's saying? Well, it looks like it's saying that from the tribe of Judah will come the earthly kingdom of Israel. That some leader, some, some very powerful leader will rise up and there will be an age in the people of Israel that... Uh, that the scholars now look back and, and call the golden age of Israel, under the reign and the kingdom of David, where all of the enemies are subdued. And, and at the end of his reign, finally the land has peace and, and the kingdom expands. And if you've got one of those books of Bible atlases or you've got them in the back, you'll sometimes see uh, that when you go through and you flip through those maps, the time of the kingdom of David and Solomon was the largest that Israel ever had. 
And there was peace, and it began to extend beyond the borders of the promised land as the enemies were subdued. So this is one of the ways that it's been interpreted, and it actually came true in David. Just like the prophecies of Reuben and Simeon and Levi actually came true, there was this earthly kingdom and this peace and dominion. But then there's the messianic understanding of this passage. And this is not new. This is not as though Christians came along and invented this. Not as though we're looking back in the Old Testament, well, what can I find that might point me to Jesus? You know, from the earliest days, the Jews were looking forward to a Messiah, a Savior who would fit this description in verses 8 through 12 of Genesis 49. And down through the ages of the church, this has been a part of the interpretation that the church uh, goes and, and argues with the Jewish community about. Even in the time of Calvin, he's got this lengthy exposition how all the Jews of his day were still waiting for a Messiah who would look like the one in, in Genesis chapter 49. Shiloh who would come and who would bring these things. Folks, I think you already know that this has already come true as well. The messianic expectation the blessing and the gift of God. And all of these promises of, of praise and dominion and obedience and abundance, that's why it's not insignificant when you turn the pages into the New Testament and you see Jesus coming and entering into Jerusalem and, and to the acclaim of his brothers and sisters and all the brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of Israel are welcoming him with loud shouts of Hosanna. And the praise of the people. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there is praise on their lips. It's not insignificant that Jesus drove out demons with an authority that no one else had ever seen before. It's not insignificant that he came to a point in his ministry in the temple where all of his, uh, his opposers, his enemies, refused to ask him any more questions. Don't poke the sleeping bear. You'll only look like a fool if you, if you bring something else to Jesus because his dominion and his learning and his truth is, is unprovocable. It's not insignificant when we learn that Jesus attended a wedding in Cana of Galilee and his first miracle was to turn water into wine better than anyone had ever tasted. And it wasn't a little bit of water. And it wasn't just any kind of water. It was 150 gallons of washing water used for a purification rite. And wine will be so abundant in the land that you could wash your garments in it if you so wanted. That was his first miracle. It wasn't a healing. It wasn't walking on the water. It wasn't raising somebody from the dead. It was abundance. And John says that it showed the glory of who he was and his disciples began to believe in him. That's not insignificant when you see these things. When you see Christ conforming to the pattern of what we're seeing and reading in Genesis 49, these things have already come true. It's not insignificant that Jesus healed the servant of a centurion. It's not insignificant that he ministered to a Samaritan. Not insignificant that he drove out a legion of demons from a man who lived in pig farming territory. Or that he healed the child of a Gentile woman. Because he was bringing a dominion that extended beyond the borders of Israel. And he sent out his disciples with a worldwide uh, charge to preach that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And it all belongs to him because the obedience of the nations is his. And the tributes of the peoples of the earth belong to him. You see, it's come true. Shiloh has come. 
the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and he has ransomed his people by laying down his life for the wages of their sins. To overturn all of our self-destruction that we work through our sinfulness. To remove all that separation from God and all that eternal punishment, that it should be laid on him. The lion who is conquered by coming is the lamb who is slain. Shiloh has come, and it is the gift of the Lord. Here's how Paul put it in his letter to Titus. He says, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, the blessing that Judah received was an enormous gift, a family promise, a blessing of redemption and salvation so great that it's able to make you a part of God's blessed family, to give you abundance and praise on your lips for him and obedience from the heart for him in place of your sin. I hope that today you are trusting in the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the gift of God who is for you. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you that you have sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem all those who were held captive by the law in the dominion of the law's constraints. As that which is good works that which is death in us, as it shows us our sin, as we are undone by its destructive powers, as we see our sin and death working within us. Thank you that you have yet given Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom there is no condemnation. Thank you for those who are trusting and believing in him today. We pray that many others would and come in repentance and in faith, as Judah did that he should be given a blessing of eternal life in Christ Jesus, even his Savior. So, O Lord, do that in us. Keep those who are trusting in the Lord, looking to you, and rejoicing in what you have done in us, even as you will meet us at your table. Cause us, O Lord, to have communion with you. Cause us to praise and glorify you. Cause us to be obedient from the heart because of the work that you do through Jesus Christ, our Savior by the indwelling spirit whom you give to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.